Welcome to Gruesome. This is episode 25. I am Meg and my co-host, the majestic light bulb of truth, Connie, is going to tell us about the murder of Arliss Perry today. Okay, so before we begin, I want to touch on something. Last week, we received a negative review from one of our listeners in the UK that said they had to unsubscribe from listening to us because we constantly victim shame. And honestly, like we're not going to make it a habit of acknowledging negative reviews. We know we're not always going to be everyone's favorites. We're good with that. Megan and I both like different types of podcasts. Like we, I know that like not everyone is going to like this. That's fine. But this one really got to both of us. Yeah. Yeah, It got to both of us because I don't, I never want that vibe to come from us. And honestly, we were trying to like go back and forth of like when it could have happened. And like we have a few ideas. And as an Aquarius, I'm coming here to formally apologize, which is a big thing for someone like me that. If that is the vibe we have ever put out, I am very sorry. I know that like it's difficult when you have a podcast dynamic such as we do, and I'm not making an excuse for it at all, but it's hard when we have genuine conversations. Us talking is what you would get if you were sitting at one of our houses with us talking about these cases. Yeah, we we would be saying the exact same things to each other. Absolutely. I personally, Megan is way better with it than I am. I have a very black and white personality. And again, that's not an excuse. Sometimes I know the way I say things. It's not how I mean them. It's just, I'm very, I just ask the questions, very blunt. And how you feel immediately. Yes. And And like, I don't have a lot of gray area. So it's even like when I go back and edit, this is, I spend like hours editing this and I'm like, okay. Yeah, that came off a little weird from both of us. Like I take stuff out and I'm like, okay, that can be like not, I can see where people would like get offended by that, but I don't want us to be known as like people who victim shame because there's never like any reason for anyone to ever have to suffer any of the crimes that we discuss on this podcast. Yeah. And honestly, I have, I have been victim shamed. I remember the first time and it wasn't the last time I heard that somebody said, how do you get kidnapped by a guy with one arm? Like, why couldn't you just escape? And it feels awful. Yeah. And I'm not saying that because I'm a victim, I'm immune to victim shaming, which I'm not, but we want to be aware of it. So I'm glad that it was pointed out because now we are hyper aware of it and we yeah, try very hard to avoid it. I I know that we've been like more tough on parents. I think that when it comes to cases where we're discussing like, With Andy Castillo, I mentioned like realtors and how their information was out there. Or I, you know, if they're a sex worker, we say that they are. That's not to victim shame. If it's coming off as that, like I, again, I apologize. That is not like what we're meaning. It is, we're saying it to show how the, like how the crimes happened. If I can't just say such and such was walking down, you know, I have to like elaborate, like I have to, we have to give details. They're not good. You know, like I understand that like, if it's, it's hard to hear these cases are never easy to hear. I know. And like I said, with parents, I know that we're like more tough on them. I can instantly think of, I was very hard on Kelly Ann Bates's parents because like we are parents, you know, it's, it's hard not to be hard on the parents, but I feel like we also 
when we've discussed things, we say, I am not trying to victim shame. I am just saying this. But again, what we say and how someone takes it, I can't control it all. Yeah, the time. I can't control. Yeah, I can't control that all the time. And like, if I, what I'm saying is being perceived as that, like, we're we're not a huge podcast. We're not professionals. Like, we literally just started this one day, and it's like, okay, we're kind of learning as we as go. We go. So, yeah. So if you notice it, please reach out to us and let us know. Like, tell us like, hey, I was I don't think maybe like the way you worded that was okay. And like Megan said, like she's a vi- I'm a victim like previous relationship of domestic violence like. I try to like put myself in those positions. I know it's not always easy to just leave. Like we've talked about that. But when we're having genuine conversations and we're like, I wonder why it's not to victim shame. It's to like have genuine conversations. Legitimately asking ourselves like, how could this happen? Why? What would have prevented someone from doing this? Like it is, it is actually us. To give kind of like a, I guess a behind the scenes, when we write these, I write the case and then we don't write our dialogue. Like that is real. And I will do a better job to think about things before I say it, but I don't want to censor our thoughts too much because I feel that's what makes us authentic. I feel like that's why people like us. I feel like people know that like, hey, this is, I mean, we've heard most of our reviews are like, I feel like I'm just sitting here talking to you guys. So like, and I want that's wanna... what we want. We want yeah, you guys to feel like but I never you're our be... friends because you are our friends. And I can't say we're never going to offend you because these are our real thoughts and like feelings. So and Connie is offensive. I'm very <laughs> offensive. And I try, I try not to be rude, but I literally, my husband calls me Sheldon Cooper because I just say things. I don't necessarily think about it. It's just like a black, like, well, why couldn't this have happened? Like what, why do, and honestly, I feel like if we're tough on anyone to see investigators, the cases. So yeah, that is my, I apologize. (laughs) I come here with a, a slice of humble pie to say, I apologize. Please let us know if we can do better, but without that's, that's that. So moving on. Moving on. Handled. All right. So tonight I'm going to talk about Arliss Perry. This is a case that some of you may know, but I'm going to tell you guys anyways because it's insane. I don't know it. I've never heard the name. Ooh. So it's going to be a a first. You get some real reactions out of me tonight. Like some, oh. Arliss Perry was born Arliss K. Deck. Dekema, sorry, I have a really hard time pronouncing her last name, but I've even watched videos that just physically does not come out of my mouth correctly. Dekema? Yeah, D-Y-K-E-M-A. It's just, I can't say oh, it. Oh, I see. Okay. I the can't. Y is tricky. It's tricky for my speech impediments, I guess I have all of a sudden. <laughs> she was born on February 22nd, 1955 in Linton, North Dakota. She was the youngest of three children to parents Marvin and Jean. Her parents ran an automotive company and helped start the local Presbyterian church. She was known for her kind and compassionate nature. She was on the cheerleading squad. She was considered very popular. She baked cookies for the cheerleaders and like the basketball players. 10 out of 10. Wholesome content. Wholesome. Wholesome. She was known for being very optimistic and trusting. She was a devout Christian who spent her time in addition to all of the other nice things that she did. Speaking to people about Jesus, she was a member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, so FCA, that's what it was at our school. Um, She was a member of the Young Life at her church. She taught Sunday school. Literally, nothing can be- Busy girl. Yeah, nothing bad can be said about her. And I will fight you if you try to find something. 
her kindness radiated and it is the first thing that literally every article or video or book that I read, that's the first thing that was mentioned when talking about her. It was at FCA that she met her boyfriend, Bruce Perry. They were described as the perfect all-American couple. He was an avid track and field star. He excelled in school. He had been accepted to Stanford in Palo Alto, California in their pre-med program. Snap. They had all of the makings to be like a white picket fence family. Like the The American dream. The American dream. Arliss and Bruce graduated in 1973. She stayed behind as Bruce went off to Stanford. She went to the local junior college and worked at Bruce's dad's dental office as a receptionist. They both had great upbringings, literally not a cinch of trauma that you can find. Like his parents were like great. They really supported them. Her parents were great, really supported them. He came home in May of 1974 and asked Arliss to marry him. And at first, her her parents were like, wait a second, you guys are too young. Like, I think this is like a bit much. But yeah, when they, they yep. Kind of like, what, 18, 19? Yep, 19. But when her parents listened to them talk about it and saw like how excited they were, just like how in love they were, they were like, okay, you know, we, let's do this. So they had a big wedding in August of 1974, followed by a week-long honeymoon to a rustic cabin. June, July, August. They got, they proposed to marry like in three months. Yep. Whew. All right. So they their wedding was followed by a week-long honeymoon to a rustic cabin that was owned by her family before coming home for like their final goodbyes to make the 1,600-mile road trip to Palo Alto, California, so Bruce could continue at Stanford. Bruce and Arliss moved into Quillen Hall, which is the block of housing that is reserved for married students. I did not know that colleges had housing for married students, but that's super dope to know. I saw it on One Tree Hill once, but like I didn't know that was like a real thing. I had a friend who she had a baby and a husband, and she lived at Ball State, and she had a camp like a like That's an apartment awesome. on campus. I support all that. of them. I thought that was cool. She Arla struggled initially when she moved to Palo Alto because it's a huge difference coming from North Dakota to California. I mean, Culture you went shock. from yeah, you went from Indiana to California. It's a huge like whoa, like it it's is different. It is wildly different, and you and don't think it's going to be so extreme, and you're just like, oh, wow. This is Boom. different. Yeah. And obviously, like, Bruce was very busy with school. He's pre-med. He had a biology major, so he's busy. And he was working part-time to, you know, help provide for him and Arliss to, so they could live their best life. Arliss wrote home a couple times describing like how lonely she felt and like she just wanted to make friends. In one letter, she said that she thought about knocking on doors to go and just like, hey, do you need a friend? Do you need a friend? Yeah, I was heartbroken. Did she join any like local churches? She seemed to be very into the church. So she was going to the church. There's a church at Stanford and I'll get into this. It's a beautiful church. So she went there often She got a job at a local law firm as a receptionist, so she started to seem like she was, like, settling in, like things were getting better. She would take walks around campus, and she would go running, and like I said, she would frequently go to church. She had started, like, going for walks and runs at night, and Bruce was like, you know, it's dangerous. It's not safe. You're a young girl. And she's like, oh, yeah, okay. I didn't even think about that. You're right. I didn't. Well, it makes sense. You're from North Dakota. So yeah. Do you know, I moved from home and it took me forever to remember to lock my, like lock the doors and lock the car doors. That was the hardest thing. I'm like, oh, I have to lock the doors. 
oh, I have to lock my car door now. Like, I can't just, like, leave all my belongings. and Leaving all your stuff unlocked. Lock yep. your windows. Lock your lock doors. Your do- <laughs> <laughs> like, take it from us. So on October 12th of that same year, it's Columbus Day weekend, Arliss was like, hey, I have some letters I want to mail out. Let's walk to the mailbox. Bruce had been studying all day. This is late. It's like after 11. So he's like, okay, you know, this this will give us some time together and like we can get out of the house. So it was Columbus Day weekend. The college was abuzz with college kids doing college things on a long weekend. There was music. There were parties. There were tons of people everywhere. Arliss and Bruce go to the mailbox and they get into an argument about the air pressure in their car's tires. Very normal married people stuff. They were arguing over who was responsible for putting air in the tire because the tire pressure was low. And like I read that, I was like, like real you know, argument or like a like I'd be like, it was your fault. And like a typical, like not a like a not silly down, argument. Yeah, yeah, like a I'm we're just married. We're learning how to communicate. This is our argument. You know, it's those are my favorite types of arguments. Not that I like like to argue, but like the ones where like you halfway through, you're like, oh wait, we're both stupid. I mean, I'm again an Aquarius, so I'm not going to apologize very freely or admit that I'm wrong. But those are my favorite ones. <laughs> I digress. Arliss was upset by the argument, as I often get, you know, you get upset. Offended that he could think that you were the one to have the low tire pressure. Exactly. Like normal married people stuff. So like many normal married people, she's like, I just, I need some, need some space. She tells him, I want to go to the church to pray by myself which was not uncommon when they were stressed or like they needed, felt like they needed guidance. Both of them could go separately. So that wasn't anything out of the ordinary for them. At 11 o'clock at night? The church is open till midnight. Okay. And Bruce was like, it's only a half a mile away. Like he didn't think anything of it. That's how common they did. Like that's how often and like how common this was. So she was very passionate about her religion. And so they... That was not uncommon. They went frequently. Yes. Um, like I said, the church is about a half mile from their apartment. So they parted ways. Bruce went home. Arliss went to the church to pray. And so at this point, it's 1150. Arliss was seen walking into the church by two people who were also there praying. She walked right to the front by the altar. She sat down to pray. There was an unarmed security officer who also looked after the church and made rounds. And he, because he had to lock up the church at midnight. so he also reported seeing Arliss walk in around 11.50. The officer's name was Stephen Crawford, and he noted that he came back around 10 after 12. He entered through the back door. He didn't see anyone, so he yelled like, hey, I'm getting ready to lock up. If anyone Is anyone in here? He didn't hear anything, so he locked up. Around 12.30, Bruce is like, okay, this is getting a little worried. We're only half a mile away. I would expect she's home, would be home by now. So he went to look for her. He walked to the church. Everything was locked. No sign of Arliss. So he's like, we're new here. Uh-oh. She's only been here a few weeks. She there's not like she's visiting friend's house because like she's she just we just moved here. Or she just moved here. He had been there for a year. So he starts frantically walking around campus looking for her. So he finally thinks, like, all right, I'm gonna go home. Maybe by the time I'm home, Arliss will be there. But she wasn't. So panicking, it's yeah, at 3 a, yeah, 3 a.m. Bruce calls the police to report that Arliss is missing. He told them, hey, we had an argument. 
she wanted to go to the church to pray. I haven't seen her. She hasn't returned. So police officers go to the church, but because it was locked, they couldn't get in. So they kind of did like a around the perimeter. They didn't see her. They assure Bruce. They're like, hey, she's probably just, you know. What? Just what? <laughs> she's going to come home when she calms down is what they're telling. He thought Bruce at this point is thinking she went to the church, was mad, was praying, and fell asleep and then got locked in, mm-hmm. which – Sometimes I get mad and I fall asleep as well. So I, you know. (laughs) I don't buy it. But I understand like when you're in a state of panic that like that. Yeah. Thinking of literally anything. Yeah. And you're trying to, you're. Rationalize why this is happening. 2021, we think of the worst possible scenario. Like instantly I'm like, they're like something horrible has happened. Yeah. But he was. Who host a true crime podcast. So that's fair. (laughs) So they tell him, you know, you just have to wait. So that's what he does. He's waiting for answers, waiting for Arliss to come home. I hate that. I hate that that is like protocol. I understand why it's protocol, but it's Mm -hmm. so annoying to me. The police are thinking this is just a normal domestic dispute. Like a, you know, like a small one. Like, hey, you know, it's going to be fine. She'll come home. So 545 the next morning, that same officer, Stephen Crawford, goes back to the church to open up for the day. When he gets there, he realizes that the door on the west side of the building was already unlocked from being forced open from the inside. He immediately thinks someone's broken in or someone has vandalized the church. So he walks in, like reluctantly, thinking that he is going to discover like the altar has been vandalized or like Mm -hmm. things have been stolen. But the grisly scene that he stumbles upon is much worse. So going to give everyone a trigger warning. It's very gruesome details, details of sexual assault, murder. It's it's going to give you a second to fast forward if you need to. Directly to the left of Alter was Arliss Perry's brutalized body. She was laying on her back with an ice pick sticking out of her head just above her left ear. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's the crazy. Ha- the handle had been broken off, and it wasn't there. So they assume like the um, suspect had taken it with them. You just leave the ice pick part in her head? Yeah. Ugh. Her legs were spread. She was laying on her back, but her legs were spread, and her pants and her underwear were at her feet. There were some contradictions with the positioning of her pants and underwear that were a pretty big deal that lead to a bunch of other thoughts, which I'm going to get into in just a minute. Her jacket was still on, but her shirt was pulled up, exposing her breasts. She had the... You know, like the altar candles that are at the front of a church, a 36-inch altar candle that was stuck between her breast, and she had been sexually assaulted with the same kind of altar candle, and it had been left in her vagina. Oh, my God. It's awful. There was a kneeling pillow beside her body that had stains on it, as well as a partial palm print on the altar candle. Her glasses were missing, which led investigators to believe that the murderer took them with them because there's no value to them. So they like a trophy. Exactly. The weird thing and like the wording when Crawford called into the police to report that he had found her body, he said, hey, we got a stiff in here. Just like he was like a normal like run of the mill police officer that he this was not an uncommon thing in a church in a church. Exactly. I don't know. It's just the nonchalant wording like, of it to me was maybe like, oh, he God. was just trying to like fit in with the other cops and not yeah, seem like, like a, him, not seem like a yeah. mole cop. 
<laughs> like it's a hey, I'm cool. I know what I'm doing here. Exactly. Yeah, that's that was that's my thought. When police questioned him, he said that he had came by to do a check at 2 a.m. like he always does. And he said that the west door was locked at that point and there was nothing like out of the ordinary. The examiner placed Arliss's time of death shortly after midnight. So if he would have came at 2, he would have encountered the unlocked door, which would have led him in there to see either the so murderer. He didn't do his 2 a.m. check. Either the murderer or he would have seen Arliss's body. So originally they were like, yeah, he just he's saying this because he's trying to cover up the fact that like he didn't do his job. So yeah, short- stuff's not adding up, Steve. Yeah, Steve. Shortly after dawn, police knock on the door of Bruce and Arliss's apartment where Bruce answered the door wearing a bloody shirt. What? He told officers, it's bloody because I used it to clean up a nosebleed that he frequently had when he was worked up or anxious. So the police are like, they bring him down to the station where they questioned him for two hours about like everything that had happened the previous night. They theorize, they're like throwing out all these scenarios to him. Then they like, they theorize that like, Arliss was having an affair. She was pregnant and you knew about it. Like you, th- you followed her into the church, like just throwing out these random things. And like Bruce is answering the questions and he keeps asking like where Arliss is. Cause up until this point, they had not told him that they found Arliss's body. Oof. So finally, after two hours, they were like, this is what happened. Like Arliss has been murdered. We found her body. They, he submits. Yeah. Like, like you're worried about your wife. Like what's so going wait, on? Did, was it really a nosebleed then? I'm not going to tell you. Oh, dang it. <laughs> this case is confusing. My brain is like doing yeah, I need loops. To, I need you to keep your brain together. Okay. So at this point we have a police officer, Stephen Crawford, who lied about the time that he did his check. And it's just all around like a little weird. We have Bruce got into a fight with Arliss, had blood on his shirt from a nosebleed. And, you know, 99% of the time people think it's always the husband. Yeah. So these are what we, this is what we have going on. And wait, we have those two. And then what, like random intruder theory? Is that part yeah. of this? Yeah. Okay. And I'm going to go through each of these theories, what we think. Mm-hmm. So his fingerprints were taken because remember they had that partial palm print. He was given a polygraph. DNA testing was not a big thing back then. Like it wasn't 73. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 74 now, Mm. but he passed the polygraph test. So he's, they let him go. So at this point they're like Stephen Crawford because he had complete access to the building. His story, his timelines were adding up. He was also given a polygraph test, passed it. Couldn't match the palm print to Stephen. So then they're like grounding at this point. What's happening? The dean of the chapel, his name was Reverend Robert Hamerton Kelly. What a he name. Was also, yeah, it's a big name. He was also questioned and fingerprinted since he was the only other person to have access to the church. The positioning of her body had people thinking that there could have been like a satanic or cult ritual motivation, which is why like the positioning of her legs and pants had such significance because it was originally believed that her pants were positioned in a way that it looked like, like she was in the shape of a pentagram. Uh-huh. Which gave fuel to like the satanic cult. Was this satanic panic time? Uh, 1968 was the Manson family murder. So okay. it's like, it's it's right prime, around there. It's prime satanic panic. Okay. It was also speculated that her pants and her legs were positioned in a triangle, much like the symbol for the Freemasons. 
So people were like, what's going on? Like, what the hell is going on here? Conspiracy murder. Investigators were adamant. They're like, no, like, this is not true. Like, neither one of these theories are correct. Although, like, you can still find tons of articles that believe both of these theories. And they, it's like a rabbit hole. Like, I fell into the rabbit hole and I had to, like, check myself with the reality. Be like, all right, I'm not Connie conspiracy here. I got to go to the... Connie Conspiracy. That could have been your backup MySpace name. (laughs) It's true. So like I said, it's, you know, the Southern California was brutalized by the Manson family late 60s. Some of the members were still roaming around in the early 70s. So it's like, it's not far-fetched. That's why like at first it's like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. This this definitely could have happened. It could have been like a cult or it could have been like a satanic ritual. Could have been, I didn't really go into the Freemasons and I, the whole Freemason theory and like Freemasons in general really sketch me out. So I never want to say too much about that. <laughs> they'll, they'll if, you're mind you. if you're listening, <laughs> if you're listening, Freemasons, you're cool. We're all cool here. <laughs> so there were a total of seven people who were seeing, seen going in and out of the church that night, including Arliss, the night of her murder. So the two witnesses that I had originally talked about that said they saw Arliss going in at like 10 till midnight. They also said that they saw a young guy around the age of 17 to 22 with sandy blonde hair and just like a plain royal blue t-shirt. Police were able to track down and clear everyone who was seen going into the church that night except for this mystery guy in the blue shirt and his identity has never been discovered. No one knows who he is. Arliss was the third unsolved murder that had occurred on Stanford campus or around Stanford campus within two, like in the last two years. So investigators were like, maybe we have a serial killer. It's the seventies. There are tons of serial killers in California (laughs) in the seventies. Like that's not an uncommon, that's not like a far-fetched theory. (laughs) So a $10,000 reward was offered for any information, but other than a few tips, nothing. Reverend Hamilton Kelly made the controversial call to have to continue church services like the day after the murder. The day after? Yeah, he held he held the church service outside and he's like, evil's not gonna win. We're gonna continue on. Like good has to conquer evil. I feel like Arliss would have supported that. So yeah, I absolutely okay. agree she would have. Um and then he decided to have a memorial service on October 15th at the church. Inside the church, they still had the crime scene roped off and Bruce was there. So as he gives his sermon, one of Arliss's coworkers like noticed something. She's like, wait a second. She's like looking at Bruce and she's like, okay, that's Bruce. That's Arliss's husband. And she remembers the day before Arliss was murdered, she noticed Arliss having a conversation with a man in the waiting room that she described as like a very serious and intense conversation. It lasted about 15 minutes. And like when Arliss came back to like the back of the office to work, she was like visibly very sad. She assumed that the man was her husband because Bruce had not been into the firm because Arliss wanted him to wait until she settled into her routine before he came to visit her, which I support that. Mm -hmm. She's like, let me get my bearings. This is a new job. And then you can come see me at work. So she thought that this man was her husband. She's like, oh, you know, married people. It happens. But at the memorial service, she's like, holy shit, that's not, that wasn't Arliss's husband. If that's Bruce, that is not the man that she was talking to yesterday or like, you know, the day before her murder. Uh-huh. She described the man as being in his early 20s with blonde curly hair, average build. You know, the guy that was seen before with sandy blonde hair. Uh-huh. Early 20s. What the? 
Who is Bruce, this dude? Well, Bruce Perry had no idea who this man was that was talking to his wife. And he said, though, that if she had something like that going on, like if she had an altercation, it wasn't surprising that she didn't tell him. Because if it was something that she thought would worry him, she would most likely keep it to herself so she didn't upset him. Which I also... He's trying, I, to, he's trying to be a doctor. Yeah. And like I know a lot of people who are like that. They're like, I'll handle it. Like, it's fine. I can handle it. Which... I tell everybody everything about me. So that's not my style, but like I know so many people and those people are strong people. You just handle it yourself. You're strong. Like, just like I'll keep this close. It's okay to let it out sometimes. Just like, yeah. Don't bundle that until you explode. Yeah, don't do that. So a few days after the memorial service, um, her funeral was held back in North Dakota, which she had just left home eight weeks earlier. She was in yeah. California for eight weeks so some of the people that were at the so they had the funeral at the place where her and bruce were married the same church so for some people the last time they saw her was there at the wedding and then eight weeks later they're there for her funeral her family had put a temporary grave marker at her grave while her headstone was being made um it was only there for two weeks before someone stole it which led to a whole new slew of theories so people are like does that i know That's never been a thought. Like, I didn't even – that would never be a thought to me. So people are like, wait, did someone from home, like, follow her and murder her? Did she have a stalker? Did someone from California come back and take another trophy like they did with her glasses? It seemed like everything that happened after her murder just led to more and more theories and more and more questions, but no answers. This is making my brain hurt. I'm telling you. I'm just like, what? Yeah. Don't worry. Go on. Go on. There's more. So there were so many theories that surrounded her death that I can't even get into all of them. We would be here for hours, literally hours. And some of them are so far-fetched that like I, you can't give them any credit because they're so crazy. Um, one witness, which it was proven like not true, but like I'm, it was such a big thing. I have to mention it. He said he was walking by around midnight and he heard a flute being played. So he's what? like, like a flute being played in the church. So he's like, what the hell? So he goes Midnight? in and he's, yeah. And he says that he walked in, he saw someone at the altar, like this guy playing a flute and like Arliss was in like a ritual position and like looked at him and like, it wasn't like a weird thing. Like she didn't seem like she was like in distress. So he like kind of just like left. It's, and the guy, I read the guy's name, but I'm not going to like put the negative juju on him because he once they realized because there was only so many flute players at stanford so many flautists that they um he it was very rough for him for a while so another one of the theories we're gonna bring in some famous we're gonna play what famous guys connected to this case so one of the theories brings in infamous serial killer son of sam david berkowitz into the conversation He was writing letters with details about her murder that he said he was getting from a fellow inmate that he knew who killed her, but he couldn't say out of fear of retaliation against his family. What? Yeah. So the serial killer's like, oh, I know who killed her. Yeah. He claimed that her murder was a satanic ritual carried out by the Church of Final Judgment, which I didn't know was a thing. Yeah. Because Arliss had tried to convert some of their members to Christianity. And Berkowitz was questioned by investigators, and later he was like, 
oh, no, I only know the information from newspapers that were sent to me. No, I don't know anything. But there were a lot of people that thought he knew more, but he just didn't want the retaliation that the church of final judgment could break. So we have David Berkowitz, 1975, a car was pulled over after an officer recognized the driver. Police discovered ski masks, handcuffs, crowbars, an ice pick in their search Oof. of the car. The ice pick thing really messes me up. I hate yeah, that. Yeah, uh, the guy the police recognized and pulled over, Ted Bundy. Oh, what? Yeah. And I don't even need to go into details about him because everybody knows everything. You know, everyone knows who he is. You know, it makes sense. When you said it's Ted Bundy, I'm like, yeah, he did have those things in his car. He was terrorizing the Bay Area around the same time of her murder. A lot of his murders were at college campuses. He was cleared from her murder because he had a credit card statement from the exact time showing that like he had been filling his car up with gas during that time, like not directly in the area. But we all know how his story ends. Yeah. So like I don't not getting off that easy, Bundy. Yeah, Bundy. So lots of infamous names attached. Uh Ed Kemper. They had looked at him, but he was incarcerated during the time of her murder. But they thought like maybe he had been responsible for the other two murders that had happened in that two year span. Ted Bundy was also questioned. They're still not convinced that he didn't do like one of those murders. So lots and lots of famous names, infamous names, not good ones. Stop glamorizing serial killers. Hashtag. Hashtag. <laughs> but very little leads. Her murder went cold. 13 years after her murder, Maury Terry wrote a book about ritual murders called The Ultimate Evil. And he went into depth about her case. So her case was brought back into the spotlight. Mm -hmm. He really honed in on the idea of it being a satanic ritual and that his theory, again, his theory, not my theory. I don't want it to come off like I'm being like an asshole about this. He thought that she had picked a fight with Bruce that night so she could say, I have to go pray, and she could meet up with this mystery man, the man from the law firm that she had been seen talking to. Like, they, he was convinced it was a man from her past, and he- What past? She was like 8, 19 years old. Exactly. I don't- It's not like she has, like, a bunch of skeletons in her closet. Like, it's- Yeah. She didn't live, like, some secret life. But he thought that David Berkowitz really did know something about her case. And like, so there was a theory that when she was during that year that Bruce was in at Stanford and she was back home, that her and one of her friends did try to witness to people in the Church of Final Judgment. So they thought that this was payback for her going to this Church of Final Judgment, their members, and trying to get them to, you know, be Christians. It was never confirmed that she ever even did that. A lot of it is assumptions because she did witness to people a lot, but it was never confirmed that she went to. But after the this book was written, the main theory for years was that someone from a satanic cult was responsible for her murder, that it was. And like we said, there was a known active satanic cult, which is like insane to even like think about, but there was one operating in the area during the time of her murder. So there was a lot of merit behind this. And that was like what people went with. It would take 44 years for the narrative behind like the narrative of a satanic cult to change. So to what? <laughs> gonna tell you. 44 years after Arliss Perry was brutally murdered at the Stanford church, DNA evidence was 
finally able to link her murder to a suspect that they had all along. Want to guess who it was? Boyfriend? Husband? Husband? Yeah. The on, security guard? On June 28, 2018, police knocked on the door of a 72-year-old man described by his neighbors as cranky but strange. Someone his landlord thought was a good guy who she never had any problems with. But when police announced themselves at the door, Stephen Crawford, the officer who discovered her body. This son of a bitch. Tried to stall police by saying that he needed to get dressed. So police are like, nope, we're going in. But when they got into the apartment, back in a small bedroom, they noticed he had a gun. So they retreated. Because he was going to kill himself. They heard the gun go off and all <sighs> hope of questions being answered were gone. Stephen Crawford committed suicide before the police could arrest him. He was contacted by cold case investigators a few weeks prior and brought in for questioning. None of his answers directly gave them enough evidence to arrest him. They just let him know that he was a person of interest. The DNA evidence from something on her shirt, her, something on her shirt, linked Stephen Crawford to her. And it took that many years. They would just, they would resubmit the DNA. They just kept resubmitting it and resubmitting it to see like when it would be able. Why didn't it, why didn't it happen? Why? Okay. Let me think of it. Sorry. My brain is a whirl with frustration. Um, If they had the DNA, did they have his DNA all along? Like how did they get his? So they got his DNA because in 1992, he was arrested for stealing paintings and gold horse statues from Stanford because (laughs) he was trying to sell them. Yeah. To get back at Stanford for. Terminate? Like did he get fired from the. downgrading his position from like an actual security officer to just like an unarmed guard that just like cruised around yes so was he he was the unarmed guard at the church so he was a security officer before that Mm -hmm. what oh man yeah the worst part you got me last week with holly bobo so yeah you did it congratulations i I have no motive and frustrated other than that he was a freak there's never a motive because he killed himself and and what when they found in his apartment was a suicide note that he had written in 2016 because he dated it. So he'd been like contemplating this for a while and a book jacket of Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil. What? Mm-hmm. So with it, was there anything that led them to believe like that he, like he was doing some kind of cult thing or did he, was he just doing it? You think to maybe like blame it on that stuff at the time? That's what I think. I think he knew. So they are running all of his information, all of his DNA against cold cases. Cause they think that he was a serial killer. They think that with the brutal nature of Arliss's murder, yeah, that is not a one-time thing. That's not like, a common is, yeah. kind of murder, especially exactly. when they're, you're right. When they're brutalized like that. And yeah. And I think personally, he knew that it was satanic panic and that he, that's the easiest way, you know, like to, to pin get it on out someone because you do it at a church. So I think he saw her walk in. I think he saw her upset. You know, it's, she's vulnerable and he prayed on that and it pisses me off because she was perfect. In a different kind of prey. Yeah. He's, but Bruce Perry went on to be a successful doctor. He is renowned for his work in child trauma and he was like remarried and Yeah. But her family never got any answers. I read an article that her dad Did they dad find was, her glasses in his apartment? No. Mm-hmm. If they did, they've never said. Okay. 
But they, because that was what it was. They were there for like a search warrant and like to bring him in, you know, the whole thing. Because the um, prosecutor on the case said they had enough DNA evidence to link him and try him and convict him. So it's it was 72, like. 72, man. That's going to be a rough go anyways. Yeah. And but at they, least you would have answers. And they, I read an article that said that her dad, like in the last couple years of his life, he was like in his 90s, was obsessed with finding out who did this to his daughter and why they would do it. So he died before he had any answers. Oh, man. Her mom was able to know who did it, but, you that's know. That's not, not, like, exactly retribution. No. The fact that he was free and they had him initially and. Yeah. It just, those polygraph tests, man, like, can't rely yeah. on them. And no, but, like, why, in the 70s. I just don't he, understand why his handprint didn't match. So there were, I guess, hundreds of ham like they checked handprints all over and it was partial. So who knows? Like either they can match you definitively or it's not enough for us to say it's you. Gotcha. So like that type of thing. And there were tons of handprints all over the church and they tested all of them. Any palm print they found, they tested. But I don't. Man. I feel so awful for her husband because for a long, until this, there were tons of people who thought that he did it he was still the guy yeah so he really did just have nosebleeds that was not her blood it was his okay just like wholesome yeah you really messed me up by being like i'm not gonna tell you and i'm like it was yeah it's (sighs) and i hate it because again like last week i have no reason there's no reason there's than that you know i i buy the serial killer thing though i hope Mm -hmm. I hope he gets linked to some other ones just so that there's closure in other cases, I guess. I guess they call it like a DNA boom for cases for the 70s Mm because in this same year, they uh, one of the cases that was unsolved, and I apologize, I don't have the name right offhand, that case was solved within the same year using the same type of DNA evidence. So uh, there were a total of four murders around Stanford. There were three women and one male, two Arliss and another uh, girls. They have been solved. So, but the so other there's one, there's two more. Yeah, the girl that they're th- the other girl they're thinking like they've looked at Ed Kemper and uh, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> what? But a- I want to know who was who was she talking to? Yeah, who was that dude? Actually, now that you mention it. Yeah, like, who was she talking to? Like, did she – she was known as, like, such a trusting person. Was she trying to help someone? Or, like, you know, did she have, like, a – I don't know. like side piece? I don't think that. Like, I don't think I don't think it either. I (laughs) I was saying it mostly as a joke. Maybe it was, like, someone who – it's so hard to tell, you know? It's early. She was only there for eight weeks. Yeah. That's why the whole – that's why the um, someone from North Dakota, like, that was, like, a big thing. Like, Maybe it was, like, someone who she, like, tried to witness to and then maybe he, like, tried to come on to her and she was, was like, no. Thought. Hmm. That is weird. And I but, hate it and it's awful and it's a brutal murder and I – Yeah. What a bummer. Thanks mm-hmm. for that. Thanks. Yeah. You did get me back. That was pretty close. Although I still want to know what the hell happened last week. <laughs> I do too. I've been thinking about it this week. It actually, I kept reading about it instead of working on my next case. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Let me think. 
it's just like, and then you go to his apartment and he has, this has been like weighing heavy on him, which I don't care. I hope it does weigh heavy. Like I hope it did weigh heavy on him. I hope he thought about it every single day, how what shitty a of a person weird he was. thing for him to write it in that book jacket. No, no, he wrote, it was separate. So like he had, he didn't, yeah, he didn't write the suicide note in the book jacket. He just had both of them there. Like not the book, just the book jacket. (laughs) Yeah. What the the hell? He's like, I stole this off of a book from the library. That's what I think he did. But it reminded me of a movie like, oh, they're coming. Click. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're right. The, The ending be like. They finally caught you and you're 72. How old was he when that started? 72. Well, I mean, how old was would he have been in in 74? 28. 28. Around there, right? 72 minus Did he ever marry 44. or anything? No, it doesn't say. Like it just <laughs> I just my least favorite type of criminals are the ones who cower their way out like this. Yeah, it's it's just super unfair that and I guess that his suicide note didn't directly talk about Arliss, but the at time of print, aka podcast, they were still deciphering his suicide note or trying to figure out what it meant. Was it was it just like j- jumbled? What? Yeah, just like a lot of rambling that like wasn't specific to anything. So they're trying to I don't know see if there's any meaning behind it. Other than him just being a huge raging psychopath, uh, they should. Uh, mm-hmm. The two o'clock thing came at two. And it was fine, and that's honestly what got him. And the they were like, thing, Wait a I defended you, Stephen, thinking that you were just saying we got a stiff in here because you wanted to be cool. But I, think- it was hard for me to write the episode as I wanted to present it, knowing who did it, because I was like, I'm gonna print present this as who done it, who done it. I know, and but, I always ask questions. So I'm like, tell me what it is. That's why I look up Wikipedia things for movies I'm watching at the mm-hmm. time I'm watching them. I'm like, how does this end? I can't wait. That's also why I've stopped telling you the case before and <laughs> until I'm like getting ready to present it. I don't I don't normally look it up if you have told me about it in the past. I've- oh, I absolutely do. That's why I appreciate you don't really tell me either. Yeah, I'm just like, surprise, shoddy. Uh, (laughs) yeah i just i don't like surprises no i'm horrible with it i'm the worst i only like them if i have no idea they're coming but if you're like there's this brutal murder and there's all these people i'm like just tell me which one it was right now yeah tell me (laughs) i'm gonna look it up (laughs) i always i look up all movie endings Mm -hmm. uh Karen watches mo- like shows like as they come out, and I'm like, just tell me what happens. I'm still gonna watch it, but just I need to know what happens so my brain can be prepared. That's so funny. I do that with my brother too. I'm like, he's because he binge watches everything. He's super into all shows, every show you can think of that's popular. He's watched all of it, and I'm like, what happens in this one? He always tells me, just watch it and find out. And I'm like, no, you already know. Just tell me. <laughs> The only okay, this is way off topic, but I guess our Patreons will be watching this, so they'll get to <laughs> see the extra bonus content. You can stop listening if you only want to hear the because <laughs> we're done. <laughs> the only time I have ever regretted knowing the ending to something was Veronica Mars. I've never and, watched Veronica Mars. Well, 
I'm going to spoil it for you because I have That's to. That's fine. I don't I like have to finish this. I had seen like an episode wasn't like a real fan. And this is like years ago that I saw it. My supervisor was really into it. And she was like, you have to, I, you know, that it came out, the new season came out on Hulu. Like you have to watch it. And I was like, oh, I've never watched it. She's like, well, can I tell you what happens? And if you're never going to see it, I was like, oh yeah, sure. She's like at the very last episode, Logan, who's been like a love interest off and on. It's like this whole thing. He gets in the car and it blows up. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert, guys. <laughs> it's been like two years. It's been out for like over a year. So if, you've, if you're a Veronica Mars fan, you already know that. But then one night I decided I'm going to start watching Veronica Mars. So I did because I, you know, I love Kristen Bell. She's the best. Cute. So cute. But I'm watching her fall in love with him and I would start sobbing like <laughs> out of nowhere to the point of I got to that new season that they released on Hulu. I watched two episodes and was like, nope, <laughs> I already know what happened. I did the same thing with when uh, quarantine first started and you and I were like rewatching like Vampire Diaries. Vampire Diaries yeah. I, like, I already know what happens. I'm done. I know. And you were like, what happens with this? I don't know if I was telling you. Was, yeah, this. Like, I at first, it's like, oh, my God, I'm late at Stefan. And I was like, wait. I really and I was like, like no, what? just wait for Klaus. Just wait and for And then him. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. I know. Was... He's a jerk, but there's just something about him. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that he's an overly attractive actor. Like, it's not like I just like how crazy he is. And that's, <laughs> that's very alarming to me because I also like his brother Cole as well. Is that one from the originals? Mm -hmm. I've never watched the originals. I kind I of watched. I literally stopped watching Vampire Diaries in the last couple of episodes of the last season because I had already looked up what happened and I was. That's what it. happened with the originals. I feel like I've seen the entire series, but I got to the fourth season and was like, man, this is getting a little sad. Looked it up. I was like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Done. That's <laughs> it. Over it. Oh. Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime. We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, and you'd like us to keep putting out ad-free content, here are some of the ways that you can help support Gruesome. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us, and you get a I knew them before they were famous moment. Follow Gruesome Podcast on Instagram and talk to us on our posts. Engage with us. We love to hear from you there. If you'd like to send a donation, we have a Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and to gain access to exclusive Patreon perks. If a one-time donation is more your thing, you can find our Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and our PayPal using our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether or not that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're, we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye. Bye.